Let me ask you guys a question. Do you know anybody in your life or somebody you've known in the past who seems almost absolutely kind to everyone they meet? You know anybody like that? They not only have the reputation, but you just, you walk away from them feeling better about life just because of their kindness. It like pours out of them like air. You know people like that? Maybe one person you've ever met in your entire life who's like that? You know the opposite of that? You ever met somebody who's the opposite of that? Like they suck the air out of the world when you walk in there? Yeah, <laughs> some of you very quick to raise your hand on that one. Um, there was a guy, um, and when, when I was thinking about this message, how to deal with people who uh, came to mind, and then we, we got a letter uh, about him this week, and he's not doing so well health-wise, but um, he was a mentor of my dad's and then a mentor of mine, and uh, he was kind to everybody. I mean, every, every person, um, even people who were terribly offensive, even people who were terribly damaging <laughs> uh, to his family, uh, he was kind to them uh, in, in almost extreme kindness, because, not because he, he uh, tried to force it. It, was, it. it spilled over out of the joy of Jesus within him. I think of um, uh, a verse that came to me this week. I wrote it down. It's in my prayer journal. I've also wrote it, put it on my wall in my office. It's in Hebrews chapter 1. And thinking about this man's name is Rip Cannon. Um, and everywhere we would go, not only around town, but around the country, it seems like we'd stop and eat somewhere and somebody would come up because they knew him everywhere at the airport, at McDonald's, wherever. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 1, this is speaking of Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes, Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And that's something I wrote down to pray for myself, is to, to have, is for the Lord to anoint me with the oil of gladness. But when I think of this man, Rip, I think of he had the oil of gladness everywhere. I mean, it was just constantly with him. Uh, he did premarital counseling with Katie and I. He did our wedding. Uh, phenomenal man of God. Going through a, a terrible, terrible health thing at the moment. Um, and the Lord, you know, the Lord will take him at some point and he will bless heaven when he gets there. Uh, but he has the, had the oil of gladness all over him. And what we're going to see today in the scripture is the idea of not just that gladness, but how it comes out of us in our interactions, can have long-lasting and far-reaching impact, far beyond what we ever anticipate. The words we say can do great help or harm, depending on the specific words and the tone in which we say whatever we say. We may not think much, but it can leave divots in the people around us, whether we realize it or not. And so what we're going to see today is that very thing, how we as believers can deal with people the way Jesus would have us do so. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 35 there. Genesis chapter 42, we've been looking at the life of Joseph. And Joseph went through a whole lot of stuff. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard some of it. He's been through a lot. 
17 years old, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of a crime um, because he would not actually commit the crime. Uh, He was thrown into prison, left in prison, forgotten in prison, uh, and then he was pulled out of prison because of something the Lord blessed him with. He was able to interpret two dreams that Pharaoh had in Egypt, and Pharaoh pulled him out of jail, or out of prison, and put him in command of the entire country, second in command of everything in Egypt, uh, distributing, or first for seven years, taking in taxes from the country uh, to prepare for seven years of absolute terrible famine. Um, And so at this point, when we get to Genesis chapter 42, we're two years into the famine. The famine that has already been told is going to last seven years. So they're two years into the famine. Um, and Joseph is in charge of all this stuff, of not only taking in all the grains during the seven years that were great, but distributing the food during the seven years that were terrible. And so now he's in charge there, distributing this food. He's been doing it for two years. And back home, stuff's been going on. You see, the people back home where Joseph came from think he's dead. His father was told he was dead, but his brothers assumed by selling selling him into slavery he was going to die. That was their assumption. And so everybody thinks he's dead. He's been gone from home for 22 years. He was sold when he was 17, and he's been gone for 22 years. It's a long time. But the famine that was going on in Egypt was also going on back in his hometown. And so his father learns about the food they have for sale down in Egypt. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Now, I love that phrase, why do you look at one another? It's almost like, why are you bums just sitting around not doing anything? There's grain for sale down there. Get up and get after it. Verse 3, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now that's interesting. You know, uh, Benjamin is is Joseph's full-blood brother. Jacob had sons by several different women, and uh, Benjamin was the only full-blood brother of Joseph. And uh, because they were the two sons of Jacob's favorite wife. You shouldn't get in a situation where you have a favorite wife. Just a heads up. Uh, But Jacob was there, and he had a favorite wife. His favorite wife had two sons, and those were his favorite sons. And so because Joseph had died... Uh, while assuming under the care, what should have been under the care of his other brothers, Jacob was not about to send Benjamin out there. This was the last living son, he thought, of his favorite wife. And so he wasn't going to send Benjamin with his brothers. He didn't trust his other sons because of what happened with Joseph. He was going to try to control the situation, keep everything, you know, close to the vest, not let any, his favorite, his new favorite son go out there and possibly die. He was going to try to control the situation as much as he possibly could. And uh, so he kept Benjamin and sent the other 10 sons down to Egypt to buy food. Verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. 
And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now remember, it's been 22 years since they've seen Joseph or since Joseph has seen them. They walk in the room to buy the food. We're going to find out Joseph knows who they are. They come in and they bow before him because that was protocol. That's what he did. Instantly, what would pop into Joseph's mind was the vision he had back when he was 17. The vision of his brothers coming and bowing before him. And now here's the fruition of that vision. It took 22 years to get there, but here it is. His brothers come in, bow before him, but they don't recognize him. Because again, a 39-year-old looks different from a 17-year-old. I don't know if you guys knew that. They don't look the same. And uh, Joseph's been in Egypt for a long time. And so he looks very different culturally than what somebody from Canaan would look like. Because where the Hebrews were from, they grew their hair long, they grew long beards, But in Egypt, that was not the case. In Egypt, they shaved their head, they shaved their face. Every hair on the head was not there. And so this is where they find Joseph. They walk in, they have no idea who he is. But Joseph recognizes them, verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now this is very important. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Come to see how little they actually have. He accuses them of spies. Now this would have been a common thing. Because we find in historical records, Egyptians didn't like Hebrews. They didn't like them. So he calls them spies here. Uh, In historical records, they, they call them sand dwellers. They also call them throat slitters. Uh, the Egyptians called Hebrews that. They thought very little of Hebrews, of people from the land of Canaan. And so Joseph shouts out to them in front of the whole court, in front of all his, you know, food distribution helper guys, these are spies. And he speaks very roughly to them. And so his brothers are there, not knowing who he is, taking all this in, feeling very scared already, because they've heard about Egypt. They've heard about Egypt being very severe. They've heard about Egypt being very violent. And so now they walk in this room, and they're being accused by the second-in-command of being spies, quite possibly fearing for their lives. They're about to lose their heads, as Joseph is speaking to them in this way. Uh, Verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now think about that statement for a second. They say, We are honest men. We are your servants. We have never been spies. We have never presented one thing but been something else. We have never deceived, ever. But Joseph knows different. Because 22 years ago, they betrayed him, sold him, and lied about it. Joseph feels like he knows who these men are, something they did 22 years ago. He knows who they are. And here they are saying they're honest. They are not honest. Here they are saying they're good. They are not good whatsoever. They made those decisions back then. I know how they are. They don't change. They are not good people. This is Joseph saying this. This is coming out in his actions, in his words, how he's treating his brothers. He said, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. You are spies coming to see how our situation is. You are not honest people. And now we hear this from the mouth of Joseph, and I don't know how you read that, but we see people like Joseph in Scripture as guys who are faithful, right? I mean, We've seen over the last few weeks, for 22 years, Joseph has been faithful time and time again, even when everything was bad, even when everyone around him betrayed him and turned their backs on him and forgot him. Joseph was still faithful. 
And here he is speaking this way to his brothers. But we see this in the life of other people in Scripture. I mean, David was a very faithful man. Scripture calls him man after God's own heart. In the book of Acts, it says that he fulfilled the will of God in his generation. But David messed up a lot. I mean, and not small ways, big ways. Adultery, murder, disobeying God, causing tens of thousands of his countrymen to die. And yet, Scripture calls him that. He was faithful, but he was not perfect. You see, faithfulness does not mean perfect. But imperfection doesn't mean faithlessness either. You can be faithful and still be imperfect. See, Joseph was faithful, but he wasn't perfect. And that's the way it is with us. We can see someone in in our lives or someone we observe, and they've been faithful at times in their life, and then they do something that is imperfect. And it's almost like in our minds we cut them off and say, oh, they're no good anymore. Nope, they've ended it. They're going down a road I can't follow, and they're doing things that are not right. And and it almost in our minds subconsciously negates everything they've done previously. And we think, man, it's so sad. It's so sad where they've ended up and where they are. And to, to a point, yeah, it is. But they're still breathing, so they're not done yet. Here Joseph is, and he's been faithful. And yet here he is accusing his brothers of being spies. Now, I've heard many guys try to justify Joseph's actions here. Try to say, well, he's, he's still doing right in, in how he's treating his brothers. But at the same time, he's still human, and he's still fallible. Faithfulness doesn't mean he's absolutely perfect. He's not. He's doing something that's uh, probably not the best in how he's treating his brothers. If, if he were responding in the right manner, he would have jumped up and run up there and, and given his brothers all kinds of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But he didn't. He kept up the, the, the deception. Remember, they deceived. His brothers betrayed him and deceived their father. But now Joseph is putting up this facade. They don't recognize me. I'm going to keep acting like I don't know who they are. And so Joseph is now deceiving his brothers in the same way they deceived their father. Joseph is being deceptive just like they were, just like their father was. And that's been passed on to all of them. Joseph is deceiving them in his actions here. Uh, Look at verse 13. And they said, we're servants. We We are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, the word tested is very interesting. I, I learned a lot about that word this week. That word tested there is the idea of uh, having great religious significance. It's being tested to see whether or not you are honoring the Lord. It's not about, I'm going to test you to prove you to me. I'm going to see if you really are, as you say, honest, honorable men. Honorable to God. He says, I'm going to test you and see if that's the case. I'm going to test you and see if you really are following after the Lord, as though Joseph were the one who could judge whether they were that way or not. He says, I'm going to test you and see if that's the case. Verse 16. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. 
or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies, which meant death. Okay, so Joseph said, I'm going to put you all in prison. We're going to send one of you back to bring your brother here to see if your story's right, to verify if your story is right. He wants to see if, if perhaps his brothers, after 22 years, are honest, honorable men, but possibly he also wants to see his brother. He hadn't seen his brother in 22 years. He hadn't seen Benjamin in 22 years. When Joseph was sold into slavery, Benjamin was seven. And Joseph wants to see him now. Joseph wants to see if his brother's still alive. I mean, he didn't trust his brothers. He knew his brothers had talked about killing him. His brothers had sold him into slavery. Could quite possibly his, young, his, his brother Benjamin would then inevitably become his father's favorite because he was the son of Rachel, his father's favorite wife. Could his brothers have treated Benjamin just like they treated him? And so he wants to, to see with his own eyes whether something has changed in the life of his brothers. Look at verse 18. On the third day, so, uh, so he puts them all in prison for three days. That was verse 17. He put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you were honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry the grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So he's kind of flipped his entire plan on its head. Originally he wanted to keep all of them in prison, send one of them back. After three days of, you know, letting it ruminate, letting it ferment within him for a while, um, he says, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to leave one of you in prison and I'm going to send the rest of you home. And the only way to get that one out of prison is to bring your youngest brother back. It's the only way. Otherwise... I'm going to keep him, it's going to prove your spies, and I'm going to kill him. Uh, verse, where were we? Verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Now, you've got to understand something. We see it in a little bit. In this room where Joseph is, it's a big, almost like a throne room type of deal. Joseph is speaking in Egyptian to an interpreter who's speaking Hebrew to the brothers. The brothers, again, remember, don't know who Joseph is. Don't know he understands Hebrew. And so they turn to each other and they start speaking Hebrew because they assume nobody else in the room can understand it. And so they say it, uh, verse uh, 21. Then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They say, remember back 22 years ago when we sold our brother into slavery? And we saw how he begged us. And the idea there of begging is like he's, he's weeping at them. Don't do this. Don't, what are you, I'm your brother. What are you doing? And, and the, the depth of the betrayal was in their selling him. And they're saying, because we did that, we're receiving payment back. We're getting paid back for it. This is revenge for what we did back then. And then new information comes to Joseph's ears, verse 22. Reuben answered them, did I not tell you? not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. You see, Reuben came to his brothers after they had already sold Joseph. Reuben was going to let Joseph go. Reuben was going to take Joseph back home and give him to their father. But they sold Joseph when Reuben had gone for a snack or gone to the bathroom or something. And Reuben came back and said to his brother, what have you done? I can't believe you did this. 
Reuben is the oldest. Reuben was the one who was supposed to uh, uh, be the most responsible out of the group. He was the one who was supposed to hold sway over all of them. And they did this without his knowledge. And so Reuben is now speaking this to them in the room in front of Joseph. I, I, this is, I told you guys not to do that. I told you guys you shouldn't have done it. And so now Joseph is hearing for the very first time one of his brothers stood up for him. He's hearing that one of his brothers, that he thought all 10 of them hated his guts. He thought all 10 of them wanted to get rid of him. He's now hearing for the first time there was one who stood in the gap for him. But the others didn't listen. And so he hears this, verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So first, (laughs) Joseph's emotions are all over the map, right? He was speaking harshly. He was angry. He he was speaking in a rough tone, accusing them of being spies, which carries the sentence of execution. Um, He's speaking that to them, and in the next moment, he goes out and he weeps. Anybody ever had your emotions go all over the map before? (laughs) Don't nudge the person next to you (laughs) and say that was you uh, yesterday. Um, but his, he, he's going out and weeping. He gathers himself up. He comes back in. And he takes Simeon, which is interesting. An interesting choice. Because what would have been proper, culturally, would have been the one he would keep would be the oldest. Would have been Reuben. Because Reuben was the one who should have been responsible for the situation. But because he hears the confession of Reuben, he takes Simeon, who happens to be the second oldest. Not only is Simeon the second oldest, Simeon was one of the two brothers who were actually murderers, serial murderers, murdering hundreds of people. That's who Simeon was. So he takes Simeon, the murderer, and the second oldest, and puts him in prison and sends the rest of the brothers off. So this is what Joseph does. Verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Now, this is weird. So he says, okay, they brought money to pay. Give them all the stuff they brought to buy, all all the food they brought to buy, fill their bags. And then he secretly whispers to his guys and put the money they paid for it back in the bags and seal up the bags so they don't see it. What's weird about this, we don't, it doesn't tell us in Genesis, and we can't read minds, we don't know why Joseph did that. Was he being generous and giving back to them because he hears about Reuben? Or was he being a little sinister and putting the money back in there to give his brother something to worry about? Being a little sneaky. I mean, every, his actions up till now, except him weeping over what Reuben said, lead us to believe it was probably something sinister, malicious, putting their money back in their sacks. But we have no idea of knowing. And maybe when we get to heaven, we can ask him, uh, we probably won't care, actually, when we get there. But he puts the money back in the bags. They seal up the bags, and he sends them on their way. Verse 26. They loaded their donkeys with their grain, and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of a sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? See, their assumption about what's happened is the, this was a mistake. And now if we go back with Benjamin to rescue Simeon, 
they're going to assume we stole the grain, kept our money, and they're going to kill all of us. What's happened here? <laughs> Nothing worse. This is the worst possible thing that could have happened. The money's back in the sack. They're not thinking, oh, great, we got the money back. Somebody messed up, you know, a filing error. But no, they're, they're scared out of their minds because they know this famine's going on and they might have to come back to get more grain. But not only that, if they want to get Simeon back, they've got to come back with Benjamin. And if they come back with Benjamin, the records are going to show that our money did not pay for that grain. And they don't know what's going to happen. And so this, this new cloud of anxiety comes over them that's even worse than it was before. And they haven't opened the rest of their sacks. It's just the one that they've seen now. They just think there was just that one mistake. Uh, verse 29. And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, he spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. Now, their assumption that their grain being in the sack is terrible comes from the way Joseph spoke to them. And so they hear Joseph speaking to them in this way, and that leads them to this place of great fear because of how he spoke to them. Uh, verse 31. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our, of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go on your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. So the money was still in the sack, not just placed in the sack, but in the very bundles that they brought the money in was put back in the sacks. And their bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Fear ripped through all of them. Listen to Jacob's response. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So Joseph's response was, this can't get any worse. This is, this is the worst possible thing. Joseph is dead. Simeon left down there in prison. He's as good as dead. And now you want to take Benjamin down there, and he will be dead. Everything is gone. Can anything else possibly go wrong? And then Reuben speaks, speaks up. Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now that sounds really weird to us today in our modern context, but Reuben doesn't actually want his sons to die. He's speaking in, in what's called hyperbole. He's using an extreme example. Uh, he's saying, do whatever you got to do. You put him in my hands and I will take absolute care of him. But his father doesn't trust Reuben. Reuben's done some very immoral things in his past. Reuben, his father believes, allowed Joseph to die. As the son, oldest son, it should have been his responsibility. And so this is Jacob's response. He said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. How, does that, how do you think that makes the other brothers feel? He's the only one left. It shows you how much uh, Jacob has that favoritism towards the sons of Rachel. Benjamin, he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs and sorrow to Sheol. That's the grave, the place of the dead. 
So we've seen here that Joseph's words, how he spoke to his brothers, led them to believe that their lives were forfeit. It caused them to have great fear. If you really think about it, it caused great fear for those who wronged him. How he spoke to them caused great fear in those who wronged him and great sorrow for the father who loved him. His words caused great damage to his family, to these people who should have been his greatest supporters. You see, because words have far-reaching and long-lasting impact. And, and, and Paul, specifically in the New Testament, Paul wrote about that, about how our words should be, about how the words should be that come out of our mouths. Because they do have long-lasting and far-reaching impact and can do far more damage than we ever thought or, honestly, than we ever intended. We may say it and never think about it again, but when we say it, whatever we say, it's been imprinted on those around us. And they can't let it go. Which is why I've heard it said, and I've repeated it to you many times, uh, that the way you speak to your children becomes their inner voice, both your words and your tone for the rest of their lives. And so Paul tells us we need to be very careful. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, down in verse 17. Paul writes it this way. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, the way Paul uses Gentiles a lot of times in his writing, he's not necessarily talking racially. He's talking as unbelievers. Um, That's what he means when he says it this way. Don't walk like unbelievers walk, as people who don't follow the Lord walk in the futility of their minds, the, the... uh, the emptiness of things that are, should be of value. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. I mean, they become callous, given themselves up to sensuality. The idea is they don't uh, feel shame anymore. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That idea of being corrupt through deceitful desires, that means it's ruined by deceitful desires. The old manner of life is ruined because of sinful thought processes. So don't act that way anymore. Don't be like that anymore. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he says, okay, so you've got to act different if you know Jesus. You've got to act different. And how does that look? How does it look when we act different? He speaks to that in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now that word corrupting literally means rotting or decaying. Let no decaying talk come out of your mouths. It decays yourself and it decays those around you. But only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion. It builds up what needs to be built up. That it may give grace to those who hear. So what comes out of our mouth 
needs to not be decaying. It needs to only build up, and it needs to give grace to everyone who hears our words. Because if we don't, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So again, he's talking about how we speak. And so how we speak, we need to get rid of all of those things, the bitterness and and malice and wrath and anger, because it will come out of our mouths whether we intend it to or not. We've got to get rid of it or it will flow out of us. He says, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another. One guy I read this week said kindness is love in action in how we act to people around us. So we need to speak well, honoring the Holy Spirit, letting no corrupting talk, no decaying talk come out of our mouths, but only the things coming out of our mouths uh, that should build up the things that need to be built up, giving grace to those who hear, giving grace to those who hear. Paul says something almost identical uh, over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, let your speech, I've got it on the screen, I forgot to put it in there. Let your speech always be gracious. Let your, (laughs) just sit on that for a second. Let your speech always be gracious. Now that word always means always, all the time. Every single time words come out of your mouth, they should be gracious. Anybody have that be the case? Okay, good. We don't have, you know, a whole bunch of liars in here. <laughs> Let your speech always be, every single time you say something, it needs to be laced with grace. Let your speech always be gracious. So in every interaction with somebody, it needs to be gracious. Everything needs to <laughs> We wouldn't be given the instruction if it was impossible. It's easy to see that and say, yeah, that's impossible. That's never going to happen until I get to heaven. That's just crazy. Paul's nuts. You know, I mean, we see Joseph, man. If I were Joseph, his situation with his brothers, I would have been way worse. I mean, it would have been off with their heads the moment they walked in the room. You know, it would have been no grace, no going to jail, no sending everybody back and keeping one in prison. It would have been just, boom, done. we're, We're finishing this. I've been sitting on this for 22 years. But he says, let your speech always be gracious. Always. It's that always that gets me. I mean, it, it's, I can let my speech be, speech be gracious sometimes to people who I like, to people who are nice, like to people who, who are gracious to me. It's easy to give them graciousness back. I mean, right back. I mean, that, that windstream guy on the phone who forgives the, the $5, you know, overage fee, I'll give that guy all kinds of grace. But the time that they don't do that, there is no grace whatsoever. I'm, I'm canceling it. I'm going with somebody. I cannot believe it you would do that. I mean, I know I went over, but I cannot believe that you would do that to me. Or the person who says something that maybe we assume their motivations and we don't really know what's going on or we don't really know what they've been dealing with that week or we, we don't really know internally where they're at. And yet they say something that we find offensive and our immediate reaction is to bow up and, and, and strike back with everything we have. But he says, let your speech always be gracious at every juncture, at every moment. I picture Jesus on the cross asking God to forgive the very ones who are nailing him to the wood. 
I mean, I don't have that kind of grace. But Jesus lived this out. I mean, he's speaking it out loud as they're nailing him to the cross. They know what he's saying. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them as they're nailing him to the cross. Let your speech always be gracious because here's the deal. Grace is the language of a Jesus follower. Grace is the language of a Jesus follower. If we claim to follow Jesus, grace has to be in our speech. We can't have our speech coded with, you know, subtle and, and passive-aggressive intentions to try to get at something else. Our language has to be grace. If we're apprenticing under Jesus, it has to come out in how we speak with grace. You say, but that person is not gracious. That person is irritable all the time. That person only speaks anger and bitterness and frustration, and they, 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 they dishonor God all the time. Well, he doesn't say, go back, Alyssa, go back to that verse. He doesn't say, uh, let your speech be gracious always, except to that one person who's really frustrating and irritating and a pain in the rear end. Except to that person, let your speech always be gracious. You know, we've, we've heard it said Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. Maybe it was a person. <laughs> when he, he said he prayed three seasons for God to remove that thorn. Maybe it was a person. You ever prayed God will remove a thorn in your flesh and you made a person? Don't look around the room. <laughs> let your speech always be gracious. And I can see in this the very reason Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that the world will know that we are followers of him by how we treat each other, by how we love each other. How will they know who we belong to if we don't have grace in our language? How will they know who we belong to if we don't speak the way of Jesus rather than the way of the world? I mean, the way of the world, I mean, every... You know, TV movie would be what Joseph was doing, paying it back to his brothers. And we would feel justified. I mean, if Joseph cut all their heads off and that was the end screen, the end, we'd be like, yeah, all right, he got them back. And we'd feel good walking out of, well, not walking out of the theater, turning off the streaming thing after that. Uh, maybe you've gone to the theater lately. I hope you have. <laughs> Katie and I were talking to that. We, we haven't been to a movie in like two and a half years. and you go to a movie. But let your speech always be gracious. That, that's... I can't even remember. I, I read this verse several weeks ago, and it's just stuck in my mind, and I can't let go of it because it, it is convicting. It's encouraging that we have that instruction. The Lord would give it to us with the assumption that it's possible to do this, that, that he believes we can do this, and he gives us the strength through his Holy Spirit to make it possible. But it's also about where's, where is our attention. If grace is the language of a Jesus follower, and I don't speak grace then my attention must not be on Jesus. It must be on something else. It must be on maybe my own selfish motivations about the situation or about the person or about whatever issue is going on at the moment. That if I'm not speaking grace, then I'm thinking about something other than Jesus. I'm not thinking about the betterment of the other person or helping them come to Jesus in a closer way. I'm thinking about something else. And I'm wanting to get my point across rather than getting grace across. So if my speech is always to be gracious, not only do I need to realign my verbal habits, 
I've got to realign my mental capacity and change things around in my mind so that I'm thinking about Jesus and not feeling offended. I'm thinking about Jesus and not how to strike back. I'm thinking about Jesus and what he would have for this situation. But what would Jesus have me do in this moment? How would Jesus have me respond in this moment? Maybe it's in Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Maybe the best thing for you to do is shut your mouth if the words aren't gracious. What did your mama always say? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. That's coming from right here. Let your speech always be gracious. If you can't have something gracious coming out of your mouth, shut your mouth. Because speaking something that's not gracious is damaging our witness for Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm going to get you. I'm a Christian, but I'm saying this and saying that and doing this and talking like this and beating you down because of your life's decisions. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to slap you in the face verbally, mentally, or with the look I give you. Let your speech always be gracious at every juncture, at every moment, for every person who lives in your house, every person who lives on your street, every person who goes to your church. I'm looking at some of you people. Let your speech always be gracious. Always. Because you're not on this earth to make yourself feel good. You're not on this earth to make other people happy. You're on this earth to point people to Jesus. And so it should be about speaking the grace of Jesus, not about trying to justify your actions. Speaking the grace of Jesus, not trying to push your political opinions. Speaking the grace of Jesus, not trying to slap other people down to build yourself up. Speaking the grace of Jesus for the betterment of his kingdom. Because it's only through him that we gain eternity. It's only through him that we have salvation. It's only through him that we have anything whatsoever. We were listening to the song Jira this morning. One of my sons asked me, what does that mean? Provider. He provides for us. He is the only one who provides. Not me, not you. He is the one who provides. He is the one. And so my life should be then seeking to imitate him and bring honor to him. Imitating him and honoring him won't gain me salvation. Salvation comes from his action and my belief in his action. Not my works, his work. He died, he rose from the dead. That gains me eternal life. And because of that, I should then want to live this way. Strive to let graciousness come out of my mouth always. So that grace is the language, grace being the language of a follower of Jesus becomes my mantra. Grace is my language. And the more we speak it, the more we act it, the more we live it, the more our brain will be rewired to think that way. And we'll be gracious people. Always. Always. Let your speech always be gracious.